every single human, no matter how optimal they are, has periods where they're run down or is going through something that is suboptimal. And the framework shouldn't be, that's going to make me paranoid on those days. The framework is, okay, those are days where I can accept that maybe I should approach the day a little differently. Or those are an acknowledgement that whatever I did leading up to that moment was something that I should try to approach differently next time. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show. So if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I wish this was most of my job. It turns out, how much time do you spend doing your pod? Well, when you do an episode, it takes 60 to 90 minutes and then you probably have, depending on the guest, 30 to 60 minutes of prep, right? You prep with the guest or prep on your own? On my own. Okay. Yeah. Like, you know, reading about them or if they wrote a book or something like that. Yeah. We put out a podcast every week and I do the intros for all of them, but then probably I interview at least 50 to 70% of guests. So yeah, right there you're talking about six hours a month or something. Okay. That's not too bad. Yeah. We've made it efficient. Is it easier because of the guests that you have to prep less? Meaning like if I have Michael Phelps or Reggie Miller, I grew up idolizing those guys. I've kind of had a natural curiosity about that person since I was a kid. I could rattle off 50 questions in a row without prepping at all. Do you think it's easier the higher stature people that you get? Certainly the better the guest or the more background you had on the guest before you've met them, I think the easier the podcast. I also just realize, I mean, you've probably realized this now doing a bunch of podcasts, all the magic comes from depth over breadth. So the second someone says something interesting, you ask a follow-up and you ask a follow-up and you ask a follow-up. And so all of a sudden you're really getting at the heart of it. And when you're almost too rehearsed, like in the earliest days, the first 10 podcasts I did, I had this huge list of questions in front of me. I had a bunch of things I knew I had to get to. And you're almost thinking about how you can get to the next question. And I've found that it's actually a more interesting podcast for the listener if you are not worried about the next question, but you're just drilling on depth. I couldn't agree more. I don't want to say it helps to be slightly underprepared, but it means that you don't have to be quite as prepared as you think you do. I agree. So I'm 110 episodes in. Wow, and, that's um, a ton, yeah. It's gone bananas, which is awesome. weird. It's just very weird. I don't really know how else to describe it. It's just very strange because like I was saying, it's probably 30% of my job, like 30% of the time that I spend in my job is done doing this. But like 99% of the outside world knows me as this. Sure. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. wait, this is not what I am. Yeah, like, this and is you not, build a whole brand around this is it. Not who, this is such a, I don't even know if I want to be that guy. I used to have pages of prep. And then I made a rule after episode 20 that I could only have two pages of prep. And now I'm continuing to shorten it and shorten it. So I'm down to like basically a page of prep. That's pretty good. But I still prep for hours. I can't help it. You've done more podcasts than probably almost any get because you're so good at podcasts. So if I was your team, I'm telling you, dude, get out there, do the circuit. Oh, I appreciate that. Because it you takes are, a little bit of practice. You are very good. Thank you. And so I listen to a boatload of them because I'm, I just get scared that maybe there's one little thing that I could pull out that somebody else hasn't been able to. No, I think that's true. Well, dude, thank you for having me. Likewise. It is a pleasure to be here. Where are we? Downtown Boston? We are right by Fenway Park. Yeah. Uh, Whoop's office. Whoop office. Uh, we're about to move to a new headquarters, but this has been our headquarters for the last four or five years. The Fenway neighborhood's changed a lot in that time frame. Dude, I got to ask you, one thing that strikes me about the way that you speak on podcasts is it's very relatable, meaning you went to Harvard, you have all this pedigree, you're obviously super smart, yet you don't try and sound smart. And I really appreciate that. What you say is exactly what you mean, and it's very literal. And I don't feel like you need to pontificate much about anything. 
your word to things to say ratio is very good. Is that practiced or is that very natural for you? I think that the simpler you can describe something, the more clarifying it is. A lot of what I've tried to embrace in my growth as a leader is how do you create messages that a wide number of your team can remember, repeat, relate to. And even from the standpoint of broadcasting who Whoop is or what we're trying to accomplish as a company, I mean, obviously a podcast is a format that's a little bit looser, but you still want to have some perspective on defining who you are or what you're trying to do. I think some of it may also come from just trying to be very deliberate about my intention and the company that I'm trying to build. So anyway, I appreciate the, the compliment that, that you think I come through in a clarifying way. You do. I really appreciate that you do that. Has it always been that way? You started this company when you were 20. Has your communication style always been this way? Probably not. I will say that if there was one thing that I was good at in school and over time invested in, it was writing. And so good writing is essentially figuring out a way to simplify what you're trying to communicate in as few of words as possible so that the reader can retain the information. That also comes from the fact that my mom's a writer. So I grew up in a household in which being able to articulate words effectively was important. And so, yeah, it's certainly something that I think about when I write emails. I try to have them be as coherent as possible. I think in general, writing and communication are underrated skills broadly for anyone, probably especially underrated for an entrepreneur because the act of being an entrepreneur is trying to gravitate a lot of people together over some sense of mission or cause. And if you can't communicate in a simplified way, how everyone is supposed to rally together around that, you're going to have trouble being successful. So it's certainly something you get better at with time. It's certainly something you refine in the process of building a mission or building a go-to-market strategy. You know, it takes work, but the more podcasts that you do, the more memos that you write, those things tend to help clarify your language. Do you think verbal communication is underrated as an entrepreneur? Sometimes I think that when an entrepreneur comes into Kleiner Perkins' office and they give a great presentation, like they have the ability to have a lot of charisma, I feel like sometimes we overweight that. Is that fair? Well, it's interesting from the perspective of an investor. You know, when I meet with entrepreneurs, one of the main questions I'm asking myself is, is the clarity of thought there? And maybe it's because when I meet with an entrepreneur, I see a slightly more raw side than an investor does. Like an investor is seeing a pitch that's probably been said quite a few times or rehearsed. Whereas they're coming to you for advice or something. Yeah, they're coming to advice or they want to better understand how they can build their company. So I see maybe a, a little bit more of a vulnerable picture. But so much of entrepreneurship is being able to clearly define what is it that you want and then go about getting it, right? And I think what you often find happens for entrepreneurs is they're complaining about part two without having clearly articulated part one. Mm. You know, it's hard to actually get what you want if you don't truly know what you want. And a lot of entrepreneurship is that. You mentioned your mom's a writer? Correct. And your dad? Well, my dad worked in finance for most of his career, but you know, he came to this country when he was 22 years old, Egyptian immigrant, didn't speak English particularly well at the time, and essentially rose the ranks in finance throughout his career through hard work and charisma. My parents are a unique couple in that they are very different and both very capable, but in very different ways. So my mom's very analytical, great writer, book smart, went to schools like Exeter and Princeton, won the writing award at Princeton. My dad, less educated, much more street smart, much more charismatic, you know, mom more introverted, dad more extroverted. And so they solve problems in extremely different ways. And I think it's been helpful for me to see different ways to solve problems. And in some ways, in the back of my mind, I'm asking myself when taking something on, do I have to figure out a way to analyze this or do I have to figure out a way to run through this wall? I think it's helpful to have different frameworks to solve problems. Was it just you growing up or siblings? Only child. What was conversation like at the dinner table? Did they talk with each other or did they talk to you? I would say that the three of us spoke. I mean, obviously growing up as an only child, you're 
exposed to adults in a different way. You know, I recognize that friends of mine who had siblings spent a lot of time amongst themselves, whereas I spent a lot of time with adults at a table, uh, whether that's my parents or friends of theirs. So I think I was always comfortable around adults. I was always comfortable being one of the younger people in a room, which is also a funny thing when you become an entrepreneur at a young age, because you realize all of a sudden you're the youngest person in the room all the time. And a lot of it's developing some kind of self-confidence to still be able to articulate your perspective, irrespective of how many years of experience you've done something for. I was an only child. I grew up where my parents would talk amongst each other. It was a very similar feeling where it was me and the adults, including vacations, including our family trips. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So when you go on vacation, it's almost like they would feel guilty because I wasn't experiencing the vacation in the same way they were, right? I really wanted just someone to play with. (laughs) Totally, yeah. So now I have a thing where I want, if I have kids, when I have kids, hopefully, I want more than one kid. Yeah. Do you feel that way? I feel that way too, but not necessarily as a reaction to being an only child, being a positive experience or negative experience. In fact, for me, it was quite a positive experience. I figure it's probably interesting to raise multiple kids versus one, although I don't have any yet, so we'll see. Tell me more. What do you mean it's interesting? Yeah, like raising a son versus a daughter is probably a different experience. So, you know, it'd be ideal to have both, you know, a son and a daughter. But here we go. That is a hilarious way to think about kids. <laughs> well, it's just like a, like a fascinating life experience. I'm Persian. You married a Persian gal. That's right. Wow. Well, my wife is Iranian, grew up in Tehran until she was about 13. Then she lived in Paris. And so we met in Boston because she went to Wellesley and I went to Harvard. And that's where you met her? Yeah. Party in Harvard Square. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Come on. Yeah. Are you indoctrinated by Persian food yet? Is it, are you all in? Love Persian food. And in fact, my sister-in-law is a chef. So Laylee's sister, Mariam, and amazing at cooking Persian food. Come on. So whenever I see my uh, sister-in-law and her husband, it's like the best food. Have you learned tarof yet? Taraf, yeah, we talk about it a lot at home. Yeah. It's actually quite problematic from the standpoint of having a functional relationship. So for people listening to this, Taraf is like this notion that you say sort of the opposite thing of what you actually want. So if you're having trouble in a relationship with communication, imagine layering in then a notion of Taraf, which is literally the act of saying the opposite of what you want because you need your partner to guess what you're supposed to want. That is Taraf. But it comes from a good place, which is like... Politeness. Politeness. But it can also devolve into a place of not actually knowing what someone wants. It's a disaster, in my opinion. I think it's the dumbest <laughs> thing. I have no... I'm glad you said it, it that. It is not a sacred cow for me. There's ways where I think it's maybe useful, but there's so few examples of it. There's ways where it's endearing. So I imagine when you go to your sister-in-law's house, if you have two plates, she'll be like... Will, you didn't eat anything. You'd be like, I'm stuffed. And she'd be like, Will, come on, you didn't eat anything. Like, you got to try the Horish, you know, whatever. And that's like endearing, right? It's like, even though you're just like about to explode, it's endearing. Where it's not endearing is like when my family will go to a restaurant 30 minutes before to put the credit card down before anybody else gets there. Yeah, right. There's all that. Yep. And then the fight still happens. Yeah. The fight's even worse. The fight of who pays is even worse. Yeah, it's too much. It's too much. So you met her at Harvard, and at the time, how old were you? I was 22. She was 19. Had you started Whoop yet? I had. I was a year into it formally. I started Whoop technically my senior year at Harvard, so this would have been like October, November of 2011. And then the company really got off the ground summer of 2012, which is when we were working out of the Harvard Innovation Lab. And I met Laylee the following spring. So that would have been, you know, March, April timeframe, 2013. At that point, did you know that this thing was going to be your life's mission? Well, I was very committed to it. That's for sure. You were. And I believed it was going to be a huge success. Of course, I was one of few people who believed that. There was a f- funny moment. So early on in dating Laylee, I got her on an early whoop and... She tells this story better than I do, but essentially 
she told me she called her mom. She's like, yeah, I'm dating this guy. I really like him, but he's got this company. I don't think this is going to work out at all. And I'm wearing the sensor and it's like this large thing. And back then, to be fair, it was a large, cumbersome sensor. But on top of that, every day I wake up and it tells me I'm in the red. Like, it's so annoying. Like, I'm just red, red, red. And I feel fine. It's unfortunate, but it seems like this thing's not going to work out. And sure enough, by the way, three weeks later, she gets really sick and she goes and sees a doctor and it turns out she has mono. And so actually all these red recoveries were very predictive in the sense that she was sick and Whoop had caught it. And yet, of course, she thought that I was sort of a bum of an entrepreneur. We joke about that now. Wow. What a good story. Yeah. Does she wear one today? Of course. Of course. If she, she's been, she's probably been wearing it for, you know, about as long as anyone. I had a moment before I walked into this office where I'm like, is he going to look at my wrist as soon as I walk in? Is it one of those things where you're like, what the fuck? Where's your whoop? You know, it's interesting when you think a lot about a space for as long as I have, it's completely instinctual that when I meet someone, the first thing I do is look at their wrist. <laughs> and by the way, it's also an interesting, you talk about data sets that you build in your head. It's made me become observant of watches, other types of jewelry. It's made me have a sense for how other types of wearables have tracked. Because literally every human I look at, at some point I'll look at their wrist very deliberately. In part because I'm wondering if they wear whoop, in part because I'm wondering what else they're wearing. Well, and you're also like, now you're in Persian culture, so there's some jewelry around. Well, now some good jewelry. this is completely <laughs> this is independent good, from Persian I'm culture. I'm you a hard time. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I had a moment of insecurity, like, I don't have a whoop. Maybe I should wear one. Yeah, we should have fixed that before this episode. I know. Well, I got to tell you, and I'm not going to gas you up quite yet right now, but having prepared for this, I think I'm sold. I'll tell you why I have been so reluctant for so long, which is I suspect why a lot of people that are a little bit neurotic like me are also a little bit reticent. And I actually heard Reggie Miller talk about it in the episode with you, which is why it really resonated with me which is that I am afraid of too much data. I am scared that like, as an example, last night, whenever I travel, I didn't sleep well. I knew I wasn't gonna sleep well. It's just, I'm on the East Coast. I was excited for this conversation. And if I woke up this morning and the whoop is screaming at me for having a shitty night's sleep, then part of me, my psychology thinks that my performance, whether or not it's true or not, will be worse because the data is telling me that I'm gonna be worse. In which case, I feel like I'll manifest that in real life and I will be worse. I think I'm just such a basket case that I get nervous about that. Is that fair? Well, Whoop is a tool. It's a coach. And like any tool or any coach, you have to build the right relationship with it. I also think it's important to do some expectation management whenever you start using a new tool. In the case of Whoop, it's going to tell you how well you slept, whether your body's run down, even certain things that you can't necessarily feel, maybe indicators that you're getting sick or indicators that something that is in your lifestyle or in your diet or whatever isn't optimal for you. You just need to learn how to use that information. And you also need to manage your expectations around what does it mean to be run down? Every single human, no matter how optimal they are, has periods where they're run down or is going through something that is suboptimal. And the framework shouldn't be, that's going to make me paranoid on those days. The framework is, okay, those are days where I can accept that maybe I should approach the day a little differently. Or those are an acknowledgement that whatever I did leading up to that moment was something that I should try to approach differently next time. So when I do long international flights, for example, my whole goal is to not be in the red. It's not to say that I don't want to be in the green all the time or peaking, but I've created a framework in my mind, which is like, okay, what are all the things I can do to just not be super run down, but maybe be a little less run down? And that's like one positive framework. It's been interesting interviewing professional athletes over the years about this because we have professional athletes who will look at their whoop data before they go play the Super Bowl or the final round of a major championship. And there's a wide range of different attitudes towards how to approach being run down. But some professional athletes will go as far as to literally change their morning routine. You know, we had one golfer who told me he would drive to the course slower when he was in the red versus in the green. He'd have like a longer warm up session. He would stretch longer and then he would have some kind of a breathing session versus 
on days where he was green, he would do things a little differently. And that's a professional point of view. For me in running the company, part of how I think about it is, okay, if I haven't been getting that much sleep for a few nights or my body's run down, maybe today isn't the day that I need to make those extra 20 decisions at the end of the day. Maybe I should sleep on some of that and do it tomorrow. So again, it's finding the right relationship with data. It's giving yourself permission to be run down on some days and to rest accordingly. Which athlete has made you the most starstruck? Because you get to hang out with a lot of cool ones these days. Yeah, that's true. It's become a dream job in that sense. Like if I told my eight-year-old self what I do for a living, my eight-year-old self would be pretty pumped. And I think about that actually a lot. Do you? There's certain things that you owe it to a younger version of yourself to fulfill. Anyway, that's sort of a funny topic, but... Can we go on it? Sure. Go ahead. I want to hear your thoughts on it. Well, when I was a kid, I idolized athletes like Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, and you know the NBA All-Star Game, for example, is on the same weekend as Michael Jordan's birthday. And I get invited every year to the NBA All-Star Game, and I also get invited to Michael Jordan's birthday party. And there's been certain times where like you look at your calendar and you're like, I don't know if I should go to the All-Star Weekend. I've got this X, Y, Z, other commitments, blah, blah. But then you're like, if I told my 10-year-old self I was going to bail on Michael Jordan's birthday party, my 10-year-old self would be like, what the f*** are you doing? Have you lost your mind? And there's something about finding the child inside that still makes you elated and proud of yourself. And so... You asked me about being starstruck. The athlete I was most starstruck to see wear whoop was Tiger Woods because he had such an impact on me when I was maybe 15 years old or something like that. The way he approached competing, I think, is one of the most fascinating case studies on an athlete. And so I I was always deeply inspired by him. And I remember when when some people sent me a flurry of pictures of him wearing a whoop. I just thought it was the coolest thing. And you didn't send it to him. No, that's the cool thing about Whoop is that often these athletes are finding it for themselves or someone's putting it on them, yeah. And when you talk about finding the inner child, your day-to-day for everybody else in the world is very, very not normal. The things that you get to do are very not normal. Now, that's 10 years in the making, right? All the other things that you were doing struggling were also not normal, just to be clear. But when you talk about finding the inner child, it's not normalizing something that is absolutely so awesome or cool or hard or whatever it is. Yeah. I think there's a separate and related topic, which is when you see a kid run through a sprinkler with his clothes on or the look of a kid who's like awestruck going on a roller coaster. I think there is still something of that as well as you grow into being an adult that you don't want to lose. It's part curiosity, but I think it's part genuine excitement for little things in life that give you a feeling. I think adults over time were told to sort of round those edges over and to almost be less blown away by those moments. So this company has raised at a $3.4 billion valuation, over $400 million to date. It's absolutely incredible what you've done. And I think the world's still your oyster, if I'm being honest. What inspired you at 20 to get this thing going? It's worth caveating. I didn't know I was starting a company. I got very interested in a problem, which I think is a good starting point for any entrepreneur. And the problem I was interested in was how I could better measure my own body. I was playing squash while I was at Harvard and I felt like I didn't know what I was doing in my body while I was training. And I was someone who used to overtrain where you kind of get fitter and fitter and then you, you, all of a sudden you fall off a cliff and you don't really know why. Other athletes undertrain, misinterpret fitness peaks, get injured, just a variety of things related to performance and ultimately understanding your body. And so there was this sort of funny feeling of being at Harvard, which is higher education, but spending three or four hours a day training and not having really any idea what I was doing to my body, it seemed almost random. And that simple question, how can you measure the body, led me to trying a lot of weird products. It also led me to doing a bunch of physiology research. And the products at the time I thought were quite underwhelming. The polar chest strap was really the main event, if you will. And that was technology dating back to the 80s. So polar invented the heart rate monitor in 1982. 
and largely it was the same product being used in 2010 for understanding intensity of workouts. And then there was a lot of interesting medical equipment, but that couldn't be easily used by any consumer, let alone for a kid trying to understand how he's training in college. And the physiology research I started to do was quite fascinating in that there were clear physiological measurements that you could understand about the human body that could tell you definitively, okay, is this person peaking? Is this person run down? How is this person performing? Yet, first of all, they weren't well-known statistics and they weren't easy to measure. And so over the course of my time at Harvard, I probably read about 500 medical papers. And then I ultimately wrote a paper around how I thought you could continuously measure the human body. At the same time, I took classes on, if you have an idea, how do you write a business plan? And if you're nervous about something, it helps to be really prepared. I was nervous about what I was doing and where this was leading because I was starting to sense that it was this uh, passion of mine that wasn't going to go away and I was going to start a company, but I didn't know what that meant to start a company. I was really nervous about it. So as a consequence, I just did a lot of work and I felt like I got myself about as prepared as I possibly could to start the company. That was the decision I ultimately made fall of my senior year. What was the unique insight that the company was built on? The contrarian point of view or the simple contrarian point of view would be that measuring sleep and recovery were more important to understanding your body's performance than exercise or performance itself. If you were to go back in time in 2010, 2011, and you were to ask coaches and athletes what it was that they needed from a standpoint of understanding the body, they would give you a lot of feedback on exercise. So I want GPS data. I want sweat data. I want better heart rate data. And yet when you ask them, what are your biggest problems? They would often go to availability, performance, injury. Like how can you prevent injuries or how can you improve training? And so I thought there was a mismatch between the problem that they were articulating and the solutions that they were offering for the problem. And there's an insight here for entrepreneurs too, I think. I think customers are very good or potential customers are very good at articulating problems. They're less good at articulating solutions. And so it's really the entrepreneur's responsibility to try to deeply understand a problem and what the right solution is for it. So I thought that if you could actually measure the other 20 hours of the day, that would give you all kinds of insight into performance because there's already such a magnifying class on exercise, but you really have no idea what someone's doing to their body the other 20 hours. That was probably the main insight that from an athletic standpoint also applied to every human being, which is to say, if you can measure the human body 24 seven, you can unlock unbelievable insights. What did you study? Technically I was a government concentrator. <laughs> yeah. You're not even studying this stuff. Yeah, it's very true. I started a company that's deeply technical without formal degrees in computer science, engineering, medicine, the list goes on. Yeah. How much was your conviction tested in those early days, especially in college, sub 21 years old, where your whoop data wasn't even reading booze because you weren't even allowed to drink it? Was it just exhausting or did it actually shake you to your core when what you thought were very credible people, I imagine, were telling you you're nuts? Those people also came out more once the company had started and was under its way. When you're a student, you kind of operate under this umbrella of like learning and freedom and growth with some quotes around it. And once you graduate, okay, life's real and you got to make an income and you got to grow in a true sense of the word. And so I think people were probably slightly more encouraging when I was a student than after, you know, when I was starting it, call it summer of 2012 and trying to raise capital. And I mean, it was overwhelmingly negative and it was a very painful period of time in the sense that most of the people you interact with don't believe in what you're doing. It's like a hard thing to overcome that. And it can be quite lonely, I would say. Did you feel it most acutely when you were raising money? Is that when you felt it the worst? I put myself in your shoes. Even going to family functions, your girlfriend's family functions, just like explaining this thing. When everyone else tells you, dude, you're 
kind of crazy. You must start to feel a little crazy every once in a while. Do you ever get that imposter syndrome? Like, do I not see what everybody else sees here? I had a really high level of conviction that what I wanted to build was right. The piece where a lot of doubt crept in was whether or not it was possible. That's a harder one to overcome because it's an existential risk, like a true existential risk. And, you know, in hindsight, maybe this is crazy, but like, I knew that what I was building was right. And if you even look back on it, the paper I wrote in 2011 was titled The Feedback Tool, Measuring Intensity, Recovery, and Sleep. 10, 11 years later, still the three main things that we show you in a Whoop app are strain, recovery, and sleep. So in terms of the vision of what we needed to measure and capture and how we thought it could help a Whoop member or customer understand their health. Like a lot of Whoop development has been a straight line. The questions of how to do it and how to have the sensing be accurate and how to have it be worn 24 seven and how to have it be a design that people are willing to wear and how to deal with these enormous amounts of data. Like all those questions were zigs and zags and even the business model, which is a whole separate thing, like building a business out of a really powerful technology is its own problem. Like a lot of those things were your more traditional, like squiggly line on a piece of paper coming out the other side. But the vision for the company has been, I think, very accurate. And that helps when you're building something that has a lot of existential risk, as in like a very high technical hurdle. Because if you're both questioning the vision and the technical hurdle, it's even harder, I think, to get up in the morning. But you're right. You've articulated why it was a very painful company to start. I think in some ways it was helpful that I was really young and naive. And, you know, I wasn't like supporting a family. Like I could function on a small paycheck. It felt like an adventure. It was like a young person on an adventure. Why did you choose to measure those three areas, strain recovery and sleep? So a lot of this notion of training properly, I realized was a relationship between how much stress you put on your body and how prepared your body was for stress. You can think of recovery as your body's readiness level and whoop measures it for, you know, red, yellow, green, zero to hundred percent. But if your body is peaking, let's say it has a high recovery, that would be circumstance where you'd want to take on a lot of strain. And if your body were run down, that would actually be a circumstance where you'd want to take on less strain. And an imbalance between strain and recovery would signal overtraining or undertraining or even burnout, which is what we see now. So if your body's run down, but you take on a lot of strain and then you do that day over day, that'd be an indication that your body is overtraining or overreaching or on a path to burnout. So a lot of, again, back to solving the problem, right? The problem was how do you articulate to someone what training they should do today or how much stress they can afford to put on their body. And if you knew how recovered they were, then you could tell them how much strain to put on. So right there, I figured if you could independently measure recovery and independently measure strain, you could actually have a whole coach for training. Sleep, I actually thought was probably the single most important input into how fast your body was going to recover. But I also believed that in that of itself, it was going to be a very powerful and important thing to be able to measure because it's really like this hidden third of your life or quarter of your life, depending on how much time you spend trying to sleep. And the idea that we have no idea what happens during a quarter of our lives is sort of a fascinating and bizarre concept. So to me, again, you know, you go back to conviction. I knew that one day everyone was going to measure their sleep. There wasn't a question in my mind of whether or not that was true. And so no matter how many people told me, well, I don't necessarily believe in that world, I thought they were wrong. Now, what was harder to reconcile was someone saying, well, it's impossible to be able to measure it accurately in a non-invasive form factor, blah, blah, blah. That's where you have to have belief in building a team and a plan. How long did it take to decide on the form factor on your wrist? We looked at a lot of different form factors. One thing that people who wear Whoop are probably familiar with is this this sort of feeling that Whoop is good at all the things that it does also for all the things that it doesn't do. So 
when you're building hardware, you have to be incredibly focused on why you're building hardware. One of the most common pieces of negative feedback we received in the early days of Whoop, and you could argue actually years, was why are you building hardware? You should just build software and data science on top of someone else's hardware. And there was a lot of answers for why, of course, we were building hardware. But the bottom line was that no one could measure what we needed accurately. And on top of that, by controlling every input in the chain, it gives you so much control over how you can actually coach and understand someone's body. The hard consequence of that, though, is then all of a sudden you're drifting into a world of fashion, too, because something that you wear 24-7 becomes a huge piece of your identity. And in the case of Whoop, one of the first decisions we had to make was, is it a watch or not? This is a fun question that could be its own podcast. But the reason Whoop is not a watch is that if it's a watch, it's competing with all your other watches. And people really don't wear two watches. So you can't have two things on your body that tells the, tell the time. And I didn't want to have to compete with a bunch of watches. I also believe that if you put a watch screen on it, you'd go down this huge scope creep of like features and functionality. And next thing you know, you're some, someone's saying, oh, well, I should just vibrate when you get an email or tell you what your email is. And so we were very clear that we weren't building a smartwatch. We really wanted to build the best health monitor. Now, the notion of building the best health monitor and being something that you'd be willing to wear all the time led us in a couple distinct design directions. One was this idea of the product being mostly material. So if you look at a whoop strap, it's mostly a band and you can't even really immediately tell that it's a piece of hardware or technology. We've tried to remove a lot of the technology from its visual identity because we want it to drift into the background. If you're going to wear a 24-7 health monitor, it doesn't necessarily need to look like a medical device. It's beautiful. I appreciate that. Thank you. The second direction it took us on, which was an expensive direction, was inventing a modular charger. (laughs) So we had to figure out how to charge the sensor without you ever taking it off your body. Because again, we wanted you to wear it 24-7. If you take it off, we don't have 24-7 data. And so if you had to take it off to charge it, then all of a sudden you're not measuring your body. So as a consequence, we invented a charger that you slide on the sensor and charges it without you ever taking it off. And at some point, when you come into the office one morning and you're like, all right, guys, I think we need to build our own charger. <laughs> is anyone like, dude, I think we should just hang this up. Like, this is getting unreasonable. Well, look, I think fortunately I had, I've always had a team that's very ambitious and, you know, wants to solve really hard problems that other companies aren't and is a team that punches above its weight. The modular charger was a decision that really set us on a trajectory dating back to 2013. But it's become a distinctive attribute of Whoop and it goes back to why we exist. We exist to measure your body 24-7 and help you improve your health or performance. And so the fact that people never have to take it off is probably in part why it has such high user engagement. Why do employees of Whoop get a bonus if they hit certain sleep scores? It's a great question. We obviously all wear Whoop in the Whoop office and we constantly are talking about Whoop data and lifestyle hacks and all these different things. But we realized just from a corporate structure, like we talk all the time about how it's important to sleep. We should think about how we weave some of our own data into the company's fabric or infrastructure. And we did this in a few different ways. One was we created a sleep bonus. So about 90% of the company is on a sleep leaderboard. So, you know, like almost everyone <laughs> in my company, might be my nightmare. <laughs> yeah, everyone in, my, in, in the company can see how I slept last night. And if you get over 85% of your sleep performance every month, you get a hundred dollar bonus each month. And it's just like something that comes on your pay stub, which we think is kind of a funny and appropriate thing to encourage. And then we also came up with a policy around red recoveries. So, you know, the last few years with COVID, there's been this whole question of, should you come into the office? Are you sick? Are you not sick? And we've built a lot around this. We've got a whole health alerting feature in the app. So we came up with a policy where it's called the red recovery policy, where if you had a red recovery, 
uh, you shouldn't come into the office because either you were getting sick or because your body's run down, you're more likely to get sick. So that, that was another example of us using our data into the company's infrastructure. I go back to my earlier point around too much data. Put me on a leaderboard on anything and it is on. When I run, I don't run for speed. I cannot look at my watch when I run because as soon as I measure it, I ruin running for me. It becomes not fun because I have to win. I'm not even competing against anyone but myself in this case, but I have to win. If I put myself on a sleep leaderboard, I'll literally ruin my life to be on the top of the sleep leaderboard. Now, maybe this is, again, like a psychotic human trait that I should go like get figured out, but do you ever worry about that? Look, I guess there's only positive benefits to you sleeping more, but I wouldn't show my face in the office if I couldn't get to the top of the leaderboard. All these things that you have to take with a sense of balance. And again, this is entirely voulentary too. So totally, you know, there's, there's people I'm being who, somewhat facetious, yeah, but no, I think I you see it, my point. But, but I think it's, it's worth flagging that it is voluntary. And look, someone who works at Whoop is inclined to be fascinated by this data. So it's an eat the dog food moment. The first time you saw a athlete wearing whoop. Who was it? So late 2014, early 2015, two of our first hundred users were people including LeBron James and Michael Phelps. That was a pretty incredible starting point, but I distinctly remember it would have been late 2014 because I was home on Long Island with my parents watching around Christmas time basketball and a Kia commercial comes on the screen and within the Kia commercial is LeBron James, who at the time was face of Kia. And in the commercial, LeBron is wearing his whoop. Driving. Yeah, driving. And I remember screaming to my parents, look, look, he's wearing a whoop. He's wearing a whoop. And they, they thought that was pretty interesting, although I think they were still a little skeptical of where this whole thing was going. That was a pretty amazing moment because it was on television. And also, no one really knew that that was there. It was like a little secret that I saw that no one else saw. Because who else was going to notice that there's this little black band on LeBron's wrist in, in a random car commercial? But the fact that he was so hooked on the data... That he couldn't take it that off. That he didn't take it off was the moment for me that was like... Very, Did you flip out? Yeah, I mean, I was pumped. I was totally pumped. But, you know, at that point, there was a million other problems for the company. So. What do you mean your parents were still... Your parents were skeptical? Look, I think my parents have always believed in me. I think they probably at various points in the company's evolution have believed the degree to which the company would be super successful. And when you say there was a million other things going on, describe that a little more. Well, just given the time frame, like you're talking 2014, 2015. Between your A and B, right? Yeah. Like we've at this point raised, I don't know, tens of millions of dollars. I'm sure earlier business plans said at this point we would be in market on a much wider base than a hundred people, right? So obviously our distribution hasn't occurred yet. Our manufacturing ramp hasn't occurred yet. Whatever it's cost to build the hardware has been massively greater than what we originally thought it would be. Probably in part due to decisions like building the battery pack, right? So we were late. And that's also a time frame around when competition really picked up. Nike had launched the Fuel Band maybe a year earlier, the Nike Fuel Band. Adidas had a product called Me Coach. Under Armour had literally just spent a billion dollars acquiring three different startups. Kevin Plank was on the cover of Time Magazine for how he was going to revolutionize the health industry. I think Under Armour's also was also its peak valuation. People forget how valuable Under Armour got. Apple had come out with the Apple Watch. Samsung had come out with a smartwatch. Jawbone had raised about a billion dollars, was a pretty successful startup. Fitbit was starting to sell millions of units a year. Microsoft was coming out with a smartwatch. Google was coming out with a smartwatch. So, you know, we're talking about the biggest sports apparel companies in the world, some of the best brands and the biggest technology companies in the world. Dude, you remind me of when Draymond Green talks about the draft. I think he was drafted, don't quote me on this, 38th, 42nd, something like that. And he can name every single person that was drafted before him. Like you rattling off every competitor 
It just gave me a weird flashback to that. You have like a hit list at home? I certainly remember almost every product that came to market because first of all, I followed the space closely, but investors were obsessed with the competitive landscape. It was probably a harder thing to convince people of. There was a lot of reasons why I thought certain products that I just listed were going to fail in the space. But when you're talking about a company like Nike creating a wearable and your strategy is to go after athletes initially, and they actually have all the athletes like signed already and like the distribution to go with it and the branding to go with it, why are you going to win? So it was hard to convince people of that. Then things continue to work steadily and you start to scale, you get more capital, COVID hits. And I remember at the time, there was all sorts of controversy. People were coming down your street. This was the haters kind of validating moment where there were like weeks of wait times, right? Like months. It was like 10 plus weeks of wait time to get a whoop. What happened during that time? There's one other inflection point in the company's history I'll call out, which is in 2018, we changed the business model to being a subscription versus a one-time hardware sale. And that was one of the single most important decisions in the company's history. So no longer would someone have to spend $500 up front to get the technology. They could, in fact, spend as little as $30 and commit to a subscription over time. And that business model transition allowed a lot more people to try Whoop. It allowed us to really scale from a growth standpoint. And it created a relationship between Whoop and its members where we were deeply responsible and inspired to release new features and new analytics on a super regular cadence. And if you look at the competitive landscape, one mistake I think other hardware products made is they were on a cycle of releasing value every 12 months or 18 months with new hardware releases because they wanted you to go buy the new thing. Whereas on the flip side, we were asking ourselves, how can we actually give someone more value for the thing they already have and keep adding more and more value on top of it? And that is a good backdrop to COVID because when COVID was hitting, we started to ask ourselves, well, how can we add value for our members? It wasn't like how we can create some future thing that we can upsell. It was more, all right, we have all these people wearing the product and this is a virus and we know when people get viruses on Whoop, it shows up in the data. What are things that we can do to better understand this virus? And so that put us on a trajectory of amazing and rapid COVID-19 research. In about six months, we went from having no data to having one of the largest physiological data sets in the world on COVID-19 to then partnering with some of the best research institutions and having peer-reviewed public research. And in fact, really educating a lot of the research community on how an elevated respiratory rate, which is your breathing rate, could be a predictor of COVID-19. That was work that we were pretty proud of and remain quite proud of. It now has alerting functionality in the app, which has helped, I can't tell you how many people identify that they've had COVID. And of course, as part of that, we continued to grow, as you called out. We then released a new hardware product in September or October of 2021. And I think this is what you're alluding to, where... This is Whoop 4? This is, yeah, the Whoop 4.0, where all of a sudden we saw a huge spike in demand for the product. And at the same time, we also simultaneously had quite meaningful supply chain issues. It's hard to understate this, but if you look at a Whoop sensor, how many components do you think are in it? Oh man. How- I mean, you're looking at it on my wrist. Like it's a pretty small product. Like 50? So it's got 150 different components in it, right? And if you have 149 of them, you can officially make zero Whoop straps. <laughs> Right. Which is a crazy concept, right? And so we had one just go totally, yeah, just one, just totally dark on us. Just one, huh? Yeah. We thought we had over a million of this thing and it turned out we had none of it. And so we had to really in real time account for that. And so it, it put a lot of pressure on our ability to fulfill the product. And because demand was skyrocketing. Demand was, Supply was plummeting. Yeah, correct. It's as hard of a problem as the inverse. Yeah. At the time, 
Can you explain, and I wish this was on video so that people could see, can you explain what this is, what this picture is, when the Whoop 4.0 came out? This is the 4.0, correct? Correct. So I'm looking at a picture that you're showing me, which is accurate, of the inside of the circuit board of the Whoop 4.0. And, you know, we talked about competition. So inside of the circuit board, it says, don't bother copying us, we will win. And it also has every engineer who worked on Whoop4.0's initials. And so we created a real sense of ownership around the product we were building. And we branded things on the inside of the sensor because, of course, if you're opening the sensor, you're someone who is doing that probably to figure out what's inside and to reverse engineer it. And that was a stage in the company's history where we had been knocked off by a couple other products, most famously the Amazon Halo. And so I liked the idea of having a rallying cry for the company and, of course, giving credit to all the brilliant engineers who worked on Whoop 4. Was that a thing that Amazon did? We met with Amazon in like 2017 or 18. And first they were interested to invest. Then they got interested in acquiring us, which we weren't particularly interested in. But anyway, there, there was a process for which we thought we were going to raise capital from them. And we shared a lot of information with them and we ended up not doing a deal with them. But fast forward two years later, they came out with a product called the Amazon Halo and it looked exactly like a whoop strap. And even the lead product manager in announcing the product wrote whoop, there it is, announcing the Amazon Halo. Like you can't even make up the insanity of that in a product release. So it was very clear that, you know, they had just directly ripped us off. And we as a company had been used to there being a lot of competition in the space and certainly some of the best companies in the world. And I put Amazon in that category. I wouldn't say we were particularly threatened by the moment, but we were energized by it. And we were kind of like, okay, bring it on. Going back to the COVID thing, was it obvious to you that you should use your data to flag for COVID? I deeply believe it was something we should research. And that's really the first step in any process at Whoop to unlock a new coaching insight or data insight. It's interesting how a company's DNA defines what it does in unknown circumstances. But a lot of our DNA, especially in the early days, was base everything we do on research so, for example, we don't measure steps. Part of the reason we don't measure steps is it's just an irrelevant metric from a research standpoint. On the flip side, we wanted also to move at this really rapid pace. A lot of the research community moves at a glacial pace. And so I thought it was differentiated to both do research, but also do it at a fast pace. And that's been our DNA for years. In January of 2020, we got tipped off to the fact that COVID was going to be a global pandemic. Ed Baker's on our board. He ran growth for Uber and Facebook. So anyway, an expert in R0, right? Understanding how small numbers with virality grow to really large numbers. And he just said in January to me, like, based on the way this is growing, it's going to be everywhere. And I thought, wow, if like there's really going to be a virus that like most of the world gets, you'd want to understand what that looks like physiologically. We started building COVID-19 tracking in January of 2020. And by March of 2020, we had COVID-19 tracking in our app. And by the end of March of 2020, we had over 2,000 people report testing positive for COVID-19. So consider that two weeks into people realizing this was going to be a global pandemic, we already had a massive data set. And so we were able to see physiologically on Whoop, what does this look like before, during, and after? And we were able to partner with research institutions, work with their scientists and researchers, and then ultimately analyze the data. And in the process, we found a smoking gun, which was elevated respiratory rate. A respiratory rate's like your breathing rate. We measure it while you're sleeping. If you look at people who get sick on WHOOP, a lot of things happen regardless of the sickness. Their resting heart rates will be elevated. Their heart rate variabilities will decline. They'll have more sleep disturbances on WHOOP. They'll often have red recoveries. So that tends to happen independent from what kind of illness you have. One thing that we observed, though, with COVID versus the flu or a cold is that people who had COVID also had this huge spike in their respiratory rate. 
And respiratory rate as a statistic is actually a very boring statistic. It almost never changes night to night. So the number of breaths you have in a minute, which would be anywhere from 10 to 20 breaths, might be like 15.1, 15.2, 15.1, like really doesn't change. Meanwhile, if you get COVID, all of a sudden it's 19 or 18 breaths per minute. So jumps off the page. Meanwhile, flu and cold, you often didn't see any change to respiratory rate. So you saw all the same changes in resting heart rate, HRV that we just described, but no change to respiratory rate. So that actually turned out to be a very clear indicator. And it makes sense because COVID-19 is a lower respiratory tract infection. It's incredible. I want to also be clear. We're not going to forget our roots. Like Whoop as a brand is to unlock human performance. And the reason that we started working with athletes was really two reasons. One was at the time I thought that they actually really needed the technology more than anyone because they didn't measure sleep and recovery and they're getting paid millions of dollars to understand sleep and recovery, but they just didn't realize it. But the second was that if we had the world's best athletes authentically wearing the product, it could create a brand halo around health monitoring that was positive. If you think about health monitoring historically, it's not so controversial to say it's been like definitively not cool. You wear a health monitor, it almost signals like you've got something wrong with you. So in building Whoop, an important theme was how do we create a brand, a product that's aspirational and says something positive about you. And if you wear something 24-7, that actually does become part of your identity. So how can we make that positive? And so that combination of having a brand positioning that's aspirational with also data and insights that could be medical. You think about how you build a moat as a company. That's a very unusual combination. It also does not seem very controversial to me to say, I have extraordinary amounts of data about my sleep, about the way that I work out, about the way that I recover. Boy, if I was walking into my doctor's office for a checkup or something, I sure would like them to have that data. I think they'd probably be a little bit more informed than what they're doing today if they had that data. Like that's not too far-fetched. And I don't think anyone would really disagree with that. Is that fair? Yeah, it's worth calling out that you are dealing with an industry that is uniquely backwards. Like the healthcare industry is uniquely challenged. But just intuitively, the idea that your doctor should have access to data that you're measuring about yourself 24-7 and there should be an alerting system that goes directly to that doctor or a nurse. And instead of having a checkup on some random day once a year, you're being told 30 minutes before something bad happens that you need to go see your doctor. Like all that seems super obvious and is an inevitability. A couple more and then I got to get you out of here. I could literally do this for hours. I appreciate you. What are some routines that you do every day that you absolutely do not compromise on? One of the first things I do every day is take a shower. I really like taking showers. And I also go freezing cold, which in Boston gets very cold. I love doing that because we talked earlier about things that make you feel like a little kid, but it sort of jolts you awake. Afterwards, you've got this sort of little glow. It also turns out to be quite good for you physiologically. So I highly recommend cold. Five minutes of cold, one minute of cold, 30 seconds. I think it's really as much as you can bear. I'm still trying to get a little bit out the door, so I wouldn't say I marinate there for too long, but you know, it's probably a couple minutes of of very cold. I'll also do ice baths and there you can go five or 10 minutes, but that's a separate thing. That's not every day. Uh, Meditate. I meditate 22 minutes every single morning. Meditation really changed my life. You know, we go back in time. We talked about some of the challenges with starting a company and all the doubts and But we didn't hit quite as much as just like the amount of stress that comes with that. And especially as a young person, 22, three, four years old, trying to figure out who you are in the world, what your identity is. I had wrapped a lot of that up into the company that I was building. And so my identity and the company's identity were very interwoven. And the problem with that is... If Whoop has a good day, it means you think you've had a good day. And if Whoop has a bad day, it means you've had a bad day. And if Whoop is failing, you're failing. You're on the yo-yo that is the success of your startup, which is not a healthy relationship to have with anything you're building. But it's also not true. 
like it's literally not true. Like those are independent identities and independent performance mechanisms. Like you can do everything right and have certain things about your business struggle. And on the flip side, we've probably both seen this, your business could be doing great and you as an entrepreneur could be spinning out of control. So learning to disassociate my identity with that of the companies became quite important. And I bring this back to meditation because that was one of the things that learning how to meditate helped me do. It also gave me a mechanism for coping with stress. So I do that every day, pretty uncompromising about it. About three days a week, I'll work out with a trainer in the morning. So that would be an hour, pretty intense weightlifting or workout. You know, I'm in my office pretty quickly from there. Bedtime also, there's a, there's some routines I have. I wear blue light blocking glasses before I go to bed, which from a whoop data standpoint is probably one of the single greatest things you can do to boost your slow wave sleep and your REM sleep. It's actually quite amazing. Blue light blocking glasses are a get out of jail free card for all the screen time that you're going to have before you go to bed. You could argue it's maybe more optimal to like not watch TV and not be on your phone or an iPad. I'm still kind of an entrepreneur at heart. So I'm probably more optimized for being a CEO than I am a human. So as a consequence, I am on my phone, like right up until I go to bed. But wearing these glasses really prevents there being sort of negative impacts on that. I sleep in a really cold room, really dark room. I take a little bit of melatonin probably most nights of the week. I take magnesium every night. Uh, And so I'm I'm a pretty good sleeper as a consequence of a lot of that stuff. From a diet standpoint, I eat three meals a day, almost never eat snacks. No snacks? No, I'm not really a snacker. And coffee and water, main forms of liquid going in my body. Just flat water, not sparkling. I like sparkling too. Yeah. I went to the dentist. They told me it's bad for my teeth. I said, I wish I didn't know that. See, it's too much, <laughs> too much data. I didn't need to know that. Yeah, you got a sparkling here. I always wrap these things up with the same sets of questions. The first one is, are you hiring? Are there any key roles that you want to shout out? How does someone apply? Is everything based in Boston? Yeah, I appreciate that. I would encourage everyone to check out whoop.com slash careers where we list all of our open roles. Whoop as a company is uniquely diverse in terms of skill sets and roles. So you can find everything from hardware to software to data science to analytics to marketing to sales. We also have unique roles like around Whoop Labs or research or we're now doing more in the clinical space. We are primarily based in Boston. There are certain roles that we'll hire remotely. We have more of an in-office perspective than your average technology company. So that's something to know about us. Uh, in that we do value being in office for a it's lot refreshing of coming in here, seeing so many people. Yeah. We don't have an, uh, an empty desk and which is why we're moving into a new office mm-hmm. too. So that's a whole nother discussion, but I think the zoom craze is a little bit of a miscalculated bet that a lot of entrepreneurs have made and how to apply, how to, to apply. Yeah. So whoop.com slash careers and you can find all the information there. I'm sorry. I can't help myself. What do you mean? They miscalculated the zoom thing. I'll give you the perspective from Whoop. So we also build hardware. We build apparel. We have a whole research component. There's a lot of stuff that you literally have to do in person. And then we're also building a fairly complicated system that's super interdependent. So even though you're working on software, there's important ways that it interacts with hardware. Even though you're working in data science, there's important ways that it may interact with our hardware or our apparel lines. Like the degree to which people understand what each other's is doing, the more productive Whoop is as an organization. Additionally, there's an energy that happens for companies when they're going through different stages of growth or different stages of challenge where you almost feel like an empathy and an exuberance for your peers because you're all marching on this thing together. Like if you've got some big deadline or release, if you've got some huge problem that you're trying to solve. And that's an energy that can only be felt, I believe, in person. And so you lose a lot of that over Zoom. Just fact, you lose it. You also lose serendipity which is like the water cooler talk moment. You bump into someone. You also lose a lot of the out of office relationships that get built. Like a lot of people who work at Whoop are friends and they'll go out or they'll see each other more socially. And 
I think all of that that I just described makes working for a company feel more like a career, feel more like a home, feel more like something that you want to be committed to for years. And the bet that a lot of companies have made with remote forever for the future is that they can still capture a lot of that without having a physical presence. And it should be obvious, but it's not an obvious statement, it seems. Like that's an experiment we have not seen yet play out. That's a bet that's about to be made that really hasn't, that experiment has not been run before. Whereas we know having people in the same environment working on a common cause, like we know that can work, right? So there's more risk associated with the remote future forever than has been given proper consideration. And it's worth saying there are a lot of benefits to being able to work remote. Certainly we're at a place with technology where working remote is more productive than it ever was before. And there's certain companies that may lend themselves more to remote. I have more of a bias towards in-office culture because we have a lot of people that like working in the office who are building physical things too, right? That they just fundamentally couldn't do remotely. But as a consequence, you know, we have certain departments that are here five days a week. And then we have certain departments that are here on more of a three-two schedule. But that does make Whoop more of an in-office culture than your average technology business. And the last thing I'd say is like when leaving your job is as simple as changing the channel on your television, do you really think your retention as an organization is going to be higher? A big underlying bet on the remote future is that by giving everyone remote forever, you're going to have higher retention because it's more flexible. But it really is a circumstance where you can just change the Zoom channel and you're at a different job. You know, you just jump to a whole different job. It's more risky than it's been presented in tech. Very well said. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what do you think of? What comes to mind? You know, the first word that came to mind was some notion of resilience. A lot of what I've learned from interviewing athletes, but even high-performing people, is this definition of high performance, which I think of as exceptional output delivered consistently. High performance is exceptional output delivered consistently. And most people focus on output and lose sight of the consistency factor. The consistency is what's so breathtaking about athletes like Tom Brady or LeBron James. The fact that they're still able to do it year after year after year. And from an executive standpoint, I think that's also true. Like if you can just consistently be performing at a high level and like have that output over and over again, that's really where you can create enormous value over time. And back to your question of grit, I think grit most applies to the consistency piece. There's a lot of folks that can have high output for a window and then maybe they're burned out or they've lost motivation or fill in the blank. But what's exceptionally hard and requires grit is the ability to deliver consistently day over day, month over month, year over year. That's one of my favorite answers. Will Ahmed, thank you. Thank you, man. This has been fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback, so feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.